Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the show, where we play long introductions. (laughs) Oh, okay. So, very busy show, very busy day. Um, We got a lot of media criticism today. I mean, that's nothing new, but um, I got S.E. Cup, two girls, one S.E. Cup, We're going to be talking about her. We're actually going to lead with the story on her because of a problem that this typifies. Uh, You have, this is what they call on the Citations Needed podcast, the inexplicable Republican best friend. So what that means is you have Republicans who pretend like, I'm just giving advice to Democrats on how to win elections, bro. That's all I'm doing. But you don't agree with the Democrats. You're not a Democrat. So why am I supposed to take your advice to heart and act like, well, obviously, uh, they mean well. They clearly mean well. Um, but first, I'm actually going to pull up as we speak. This is a little bit of an impromptu segment. Real clear politics. Um, Democratic primary. Let's see what comes up here. I just want to give everybody... A little bit of a breakdown, uh, because 
it's always good to have a general idea of the state of the race. And there's been quite a bit of movement lately. Some of it good, some of it uh, maybe not so good, but all right, let me uh, let me break this down a little bit. Give me the total numbers, bitch. Give me the total numbers. Okay. <clears throat> Actually, I gotta change the SE Cup graphic behind me if I'm gonna do a little bit of a a breakdown here for of the primary numbers because it's uh it's not about SE Cup. I'm adding a Hansy Uncle Joseph thing behind me. How's that? Big old hands, Uncle Joseph. All right, here we go. <clears throat> so I want to give everybody a quick breakdown or a quick snapshot of the state of the primary at this very moment. So according to the Real Clear Politics average of polls, here's what we're looking at. Joe Biden is at 28.8% nationally. You actually have Elizabeth Warren at 18.3%, and Bernie Sanders is at 16.5%. So there's a couple things that we have to establish right off the bat here. Um, and that is that Hansy Uncle Joseph is holding on for dear life. He's still the front runner. Now, I know that sounds crazy, but you have to understand that our little political junkie bubble is not necessarily indicative of what's going on in the rest of the country because, as you guys have heard me say before, if you have somebody who's what I call default support for Biden, it's going to take quite a bit to get them out of that default support. They'd have to actually start caring and paying attention more to what's going on around them, and they'd have to watch one of the debates. They'd have to find another candidate that they like. So that default support is real. I just need everybody to know that. Yes, we've spoken about, you know, how since his launch, he's dropped massively. And on the Real Clear Politics averages there, you could see that he peaked, when is it, like late May, early June? And then since then, it's been like a gradual, steady decline, a couple bumps back up, but he's kind of leveled out now at about 28 support. So everybody needs to just understand that that's real and we can't, you know, sit back and relax and rest on the fact that, oh, well, you know, it's going to be a natural cycle and he'll obviously just continue to plummet. No, we have to work to make that happen. Now, he's helping us by not being able to get a sentence out, but, you know, this still means that you should be involved and you should be educating people and you should, I don't know if you want to canvas for for Bernie or your favorite candidate, go right ahead and do that. You want to have political conversations with your loved ones and your friends, assuming that they're actually into politics, by all means, go right ahead and do that. Um, but bottom line is there is still a default lead there for Joe Biden. Now, Elizabeth Warren has surged. Okay, this isn't like a, this isn't a one-off thing. It's not like, oh, well, we have one poll which says that, uh, you know, she – she went up, it's, no, it's kind of a trend. We're seeing a trend here. So that's another thing that needs to be taken very seriously. And even though my general philosophy is I don't like it when, you know, people who are, to one extent or another, ideological allies, 
I don't like it when they snipe at each other and they're at each other's throats. I do always add the caveat of truth is always a defense, and there's ways to differentiate your candidate without necessarily, you know, throwing bombs at one who's somewhat of an ideological ally. So now is the time for all the Bernie Sanders people to pump out that message that these are not the same. These candidates are not the same. You know, you have with Elizabeth Warren, you have a candidate who, particularly when it comes to foreign policy, has a massive blind spot. Now, maybe some people would counter with that and say, well, Bernie has a blind spot on foreign policy, too. But those things are are nowhere near analogous because Elizabeth Warren's uh, blind spot is almost all of foreign policy, whereas Bernie's is just little, uh, you know, tweaks around the edges, like, for example, drones or BES or, you know, whatever. But um, when it comes to Elizabeth Warren, forget it. She's basically just a standard Democrat when it comes to foreign policy. And that's certainly not what we need at this point in time. There's also the question about uh, Medicare for all and how much um, she's dedicated to it. And now she's changed her rhetoric to act like she's more pro-Medicare for all because she can read the room. And the room is, if you're against Medicare for all, we don't want you. But again, you have to remember her answer for the longest time on that issue was that all the Democrats are starting from the same place, which is they want universal coverage. And she would equate Medicare for all with Medicare for America, with Medicare for all extra, with public option, with Obamacare expansion bills. So that was her thing. Her thing was like, I'll just conflate all the Democratic proposals and act like they all mean well, when in reality, you and I both know all the bills except the Bernie bill and the Jayapal bill are just to one extent or another gaslighting to protect the profits of the status quo, or excuse me, gaslighting to protect the status quo or the profits of the health insurance companies. Um, So that's another thing that I wanted to point out. Now, Bernie being at 16.5%, you know, the thing about that is while at the national level that may scare you a little bit if you look at it and you say, oh, my God, he's kind of tapering now. You have to understand that Bernie's support is spread out in a way that's very advantageous to Bernie. So what does that mean? This is really important. It's a really important distinction. So Donald Trump, he lost the popular vote to Hillary Clinton. However, he ended up winning the general election. Why? Because the way that his support was dispersed around the country is exactly how he needed it to win the general election. Now, in the case of Bernie Sanders, let me show you this tweet, because this is massively important. But what we have here is, John Nichols tweeted this, latest California poll, Bernie Sanders tied for first. Latest New Hampshire poll, Bernie Sanders in first. Newest Iowa poll, Bernie Sanders 3% behind Biden. Uh, Latest Nevada poll, Bernie Sanders in first. Uh, Latest South Carolina poll, Bernie Sanders in second. So, in other words, what you have here is, as of right now, the two most important states, Iowa and New Hampshire, because they're super early, uh, you have Bernie Sanders either in first or 3% behind. So what this means is, even though that national number is not as impressive as we'd like it to be, the way that that support is dispersed around the country is such that it's actually a strategic advantage in many ways. Because if Bernie knocks off Iowa and New Hampshire, then we're really having a conversation and it looks really good for him. 
Now, if he stumbles out of the gate, that's a separate question. But uh, the fact of the matter is that um, even though that he's kind of leveled out at that number, he's working harder than humanly possible. He also has a campaign that, in my opinion, has been doing a wonderful job. I think his campaign strategy is much more uh, targeted, effective, and specific this time around, and much more likely to work this time around um, than it was in 2016. So he's doing absolutely everything he can. And even though that number's kind of leveled out at the national level, when you go state by state, it looks pretty good. It looks pretty good. Um, and then, of course, I mean, we don't even really need to get into the other candidates at this point, but you actually have um, Buttigieg at 5.8%, and then Harris at 5.7%, and then Beto and Yang at 3%, and then everybody else, you know. The, the numbers kind of bunch up there at the bottom, and it's hard to see uh, what else people got going on down there. But at this point in time, it, it appears to be a three-person race. It appears to be Biden, Elizabeth Warren, and Bernie Sanders. That's definitely what I see. So I just wanted to give everybody a quick little breakdown of uh, the state of the race, and so we can proceed knowing where we're at at the current moment. Okay. Okay, now we move on to SE Cup. Two girls, one SE Cup. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> Do I have my video in order? Of course not, because my name is Kyle, and I'm a fucking mess. So now I have to hear this. CNN's SE Cup concern trolled Democrats about their strategy to beat Trump, and I have so much to say about this segment. The 2020 Democratic candidates are all over the country today trying to reinforce, or in some cases recover from, their debate performances. Elizabeth Warren, who had a pretty decent night, is in Springfield, Massachusetts today, where she had this to say. Democrats have a job to do in 2020. Beat Donald Trump. It's a good, if odd, reminder to the Democrats running for president that the goal of this poll thing is to beat Trump. But he didn't come up a whole lot at the debate. According to 538, Trump was mentioned by the candidates a total of 35 times during Thursday's debate. That's down from 61 and 72 times on the second debate's two nights. The frontrunner, Joe Biden, only mentioned Trump once, despite the fact that his biggest selling point thus far has been, I'm the best to beat Trump. So here's tonight's headline. Yes, this is a Democratic primary, but don't forget it's followed by a general election. Thursday's debate, while highlighting some strong moments from some of the candidates, also revealed looming storm clouds on the horizon for Democrats. What might be working now to get Twitter likes and make headlines 
might also make it impossible to win in the general. All the candidates say they're united against the common enemy Trump, but it doesn't always seem like they really mean it. If you're here to be Trump, then why are you trying to do it by proving you're the farthest left on the stage? If you're here to be Trump, then why are you trying to injure your potential nominee with personal petty attacks? If you're here to be Donald Trump, then why are you grandstanding on radical, unpopular policies that most Americans can't support and have no chance of becoming reality? Because they're not radical and unpopular, and they do have a chance of becoming reality. See, okay, on the Citations Needed podcast, they've described this as the inexplicable Republican best friend. Just so you know, S.E. Cup is a registered Republican. How many times have you heard, or how many times have you seen articles in the past few months where it's a Republican or it's a conservative, and they do this, like, finger-wagging, concern trolling about the Democrats, and like, huh, allow me to say, you all need to get voters like me in order to beat Donald Trump. Those articles never go in the other direction. You never have Democrats who write articles where they give Republicans advice, like, okay, guys, listen, here's what your party has to do to be serious. That doesn't happen. Because it's absurd on its face. Hey, S.E., why don't you take some time to try to, I don't know, reform your own party instead of trying to get the Democrats to agree more with you? Guys, it's a tautology. She's a Republican, so guess what? Of course she wants Democrats who are going to move more in her direction, who are not going to hold down a left-wing position. Because she doesn't agree with a left-wing position. So, of course, that's her you know, ideology. The thing that's annoying about it is how disingenuous it is where they try to frame it like, and obviously this is the truth on how to beat Trump. The way to beat Trump is magically to agree more with me, S.E. Cup. What a dumb analysis. No, if you actually look at the polls, it's overwhelmingly obvious. Medicare for all is at 70%. Um, Free college is at 59%. Legalizing marijuana is at 62%. A living wage is at 80% in the polls. The list goes on and on. 80% of Americans disapprove of the Iraq war right now. I mean, again, I could sit here all day and just give you poll after poll after poll after poll that shows the left-wing position is the favorable position. But what does she do? She goes out there and smugly asserts, like, why are they racing to see who's furthest left? Maybe because that is how you actually win. Maybe because we just saw what happened to Hillary Clinton when she ran a totally uninspiring centrist campaign and then lost to a goofball reality show host who can't get a coherent sentence out. So it's just, it's so disingenuous. It's so annoying. It's so silly. And it is the inexplicable Republican best friend. Now, by the way, in this segment, she goes on to invite on, you know how they do this in these, oh, here's my lead in. I'm going to do my little monologue and then I'll invite somebody in and I'll interview them. And we'll talk to them about this issue. You know who the guest was? Evan Bayh. Like, literally, the most corporate Democrat of all time. Massively, massively, massively unpopular. It's like when now, you know, all these news outlets, they have on Claire McCaskill to try to tell Democrats, this is how you win. 
But she lost. Why are you asking her? She lost. She lost. So don't tell me, like, oh, let's go to the exact people who are the most unpopular Democrats, who are incredibly corporate, and let's ask them what they want to do to win. No, if anything, you listen to what they say and do the exact opposite. But no, see, this is, guys, this is the power of conventional wisdom. The power of conventional wisdom is even when the truth is obvious and it's right in front of your face and it's common sense, you act like that's not the case. You act like it's the opposite. So even though nobody likes Evan Bayh, even though nobody likes Claire McCaskill and she lost, you go to them. What do you think the serious people always say to Democrats? You gotta, you gotta be more centrist. You gotta run to the right. You gotta do, you know, agree with the Republicans, meet them halfway in order to be, you know, in order to be serious, in order to win elections. But there's no empirical reason to believe that that's actually the way to go. None whatsoever. If that was the case, Hillary Clinton would already be president. If that was the case, the Democrats would have never lost a thousand seats. So, you know, you could, if you were intelligent, what you could do is, I don't know. Maybe there's somebody out there who's in media who's like the co-founder of a left-wing group that was wildly successful and popped up after the 2016 election and helped get so many uh, people elected. Maybe you talk to Alexander Ocasio-Cortez. Maybe you talk to Ilhan Omar. Maybe you talk to Rashida Tlaib. Maybe you talk to um, not just Justice Democrats, but also Our Revolution. And um, uh, what's it called? PCCC, progressive. No, is it PCCC? What am I thinking of? I'm blanking on the name of the group, but I'm sure all of you are saying it to yourself right now in your own head. But there are, um, listen, there are a lot of people you could talk to who actually know what we're doing in terms of getting Democrats elected. When you have a candidate who's outspent 10 to 1 and they knock off a Democrat in leadership, maybe they have some idea what they're doing. Maybe they have some idea. That's, of course, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. But no, the conventional wisdom in Washington, D.C. is they're silly people, they're ridiculous people. They're the fringe, even though, and write this one down, the real centrist is Bernie Sanders, is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Centrist in the sense that they represent the smack-dab center of mainstream American opinion among the actual voters, not the out-of-touch swamp things in Washington, D.C. So please, S.E. Cobb, take your inexplicable Republican best friend shtick and uh, move along, because... You're not a Democrat, and you also um, obviously are ideologically interested in getting whatever party to agree more with your politics. There's a reason why I don't come out here and do segments where I finger wag at the Republican establishment, and I'm like, you should do this, this, and this, which are the things that I agree with, and that's how you're serious. No. There's a party that's more ideologically in alignment with me, and that's the party I'm trying to reform, and that's the party I'm trying to take over. It's not the opposition party. Perhaps, you know, the fact that the party is uh, in opposition to you, S.E., is good. Now, that, by the way, just for the record, that doesn't mean I'm against getting all Republican votes, no. But you get the people who are gettable. In other words, you get the people who you can get without betraying your own values and with doubling down on what your own policies and values are supposed to be. So if you can get Republicans by arguing for Medicare for all, free college, a living wage, canceling student loan debt, stopping the outsourcing, doing a, a, a Green New Deal, if you can get Republicans by saying, hey, we're going to increase your wages, we're going to bring back more jobs. So if you could do your own message and get them, that's how you get them. And that will attract independence, that will attract 
like the two times Obama voters who then flipped to Trump, that'll attract those people. It'll also hold your base down. But certainly what we're not going to do is say, oh, let's just be Republicans. Because S.E. Cup did a segment saying, well, this is how you beat Trump. Based on what, S.E.? Based on what? And also this idea that like a, you know, a long, drawn-out, vicious primary is a bad thing. Who's president right now? Donald Trump. That was the most vicious primary in human history. The Republicans were all at each other's throats. And Donald Trump came out of that and won, and then won the general election. So this idea that a long, drawn-out primary is not good for electability. Even if that were true, I don't give a shit, because this is democracy. This is how it works. But it's not even true. There's no reason to believe that, oh, my God, a long, drawn-out primary is so bad. No. The whole point of this is let's pick who best represents our party, who best represents the actual voters and the people. And the way you figure that out is to get them on stage, and they disagree with each other. And they say, here's my policy. Well, no, hey, here's my policy. And sometimes they throw around insults. And that's okay, because that's the way the system is supposed to work. That is democracy. So everything about this segment is just insufferable and also insanely stale and predictable. I see this coming from a mile away. I mean, it's almost like they got a freaking machine that just spews out the banal talking points that they have to go to every single day. Before this happened, I could have predicted this for you. This is how it's going to unfold. This is how they're going to finger wag at the Democrats and say, do this, fall in line. And it's just, at least catch me off guard a little bit with something slightly interesting. But no, they go right back to the standard playbook of what we knew they were going to say and what we knew they were going to do. And um, it's not interesting. It's not intelligent. It's not close to true. And it's kind of embarrassing. All right, I got more terrible, more terrible news, host. Yes, 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 yes. So one of the things I've told you guys on this show since it began is that it matters how you resist politicians on the right. And it matters how you resist corporate Democrats. The... The logical extension of the arguments you make matter. They matter. So it's not enough to be like idiots like Sean Hannity and just fling mud and hope something sticks. And the best example of that, of this rank hackery, is when Sean Hannity talked about the NSA spying program under Bush, and he said, this is wonderful, this is to keep the country safe, and Democrats are against this, which means they're on the side of terrorists, and I, Sean Hannity, want to protect you. I care about national security, and that's why we need the data mining and the NSA spying and so on and so forth. That's what he said under Bush. Then under Obama, that exact same program he described as infringing on your civil liberties and your Fourth Amendment rights. Now, he was correct that it does infringe on your liberty and your Fourth Amendment rights. It is unconstitutional. Government shouldn't have that kind of power. But it depended who was in office, and he just flipped his standard. He flipped his position. And... That kind of like, I have no principles, I have no real beliefs, I'm just a partisan hack stuff, is so, I'm so averse to it, and I despise it with every fiber of my being. Well, in step, um, Aaron Burnett of CNN, 
And uh, she's going to show you, she's going to put on a clinic here in exactly how not to resist Donald Trump because of, and I want you to pay close attention to this, because of the logical implications of the way in which she's trying to burn him and play Gaia. Trump blames Iran for the attack on oil supply that caused oil prices to spike 20%, and he says he's prepared for military action. This is a source tells CNN, United States Intelligence, believes the attack originated inside Iran. Have you seen evidence proof that Iran was behind the attack? Well, it's looking that way. Trump's words coming after he tweeted in part, quote, the U.S. is locked and loaded. Locked and loaded is, of course, a big threat. And a senior Revolutionary Guard commander from Iran said overnight that the country is, quote, ready for full-fledged war. Of course, the problem with hot rhetoric is that it can go wrong fast. But playing fast and loose with facts and words, of course, is not new for Trump. He actually threatened Iran with much worse in July 2018 when he tweeted to Iranian President Rouhani, never ever threaten the United States again or you will suffer consequences, the likes of which few throughout history have ever suffered before. Well, there were no consequences, certainly not the likes of which few in history have ever before suffered. But Trump does love to issue threats and then do nothing. Take, for example, North Korea. Remember this. North Korea best not make any more threats to the United States. They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. Fire and fury. Well, there has been plenty of fire, but from North Korea. It has fired nearly two dozen rockets since that day, the last one said to be a super large multiple rocket launcher. As for Trump, fire and fury? Turn into this. I was really being tough, and so was he. And we go back and forth, and then we fell in love. Okay? No, really. He wrote me beautiful letters, and they're great letters. We fell in love. So if fire and fury turn into that, then why should Iran take locked and loaded and Armageddon-like threats of making world history seriously? So how would Trump go about, let's see, let's say Trump, watches this segment. How would he go about proving Aaron Burnett wrong? The entire way that she's prodding him there is, Mr. President, you say all these tough things, but then you don't follow up on it. You don't follow through. So you should. What are you doing? You can't say you're locked and loaded and then do nothing. You can't say you're going to rain down fire and fury and then do nothing. So you're all talk and no action. So the way that he's going to interpret that is I need to be, I need to be more about the action. I need to actually follow through on some of this stuff. That's how he's going to interpret that. That's, that's the way in which you're prodding him. Now, Am I saying, oh, you can't criticize Trump on, you know, this issue of foreign policy? Of course not. But the way that you go after him is you put up the locked and loaded tweet. You show the fire and fury comment and you say, this is insane. He's a thin-skinned lunatic and he doesn't have the temperament or the cognitive ability or the policy chops to be in this position. He's not a thoughtful person. So... Stop throwing around threats to other world leaders. Full stop. So you want to go after Trump? That's how you go after Trump. 
to say, oh, you talked tough, but then you didn't follow through, the implication being, man, you really need to follow through, that is, that's like terrifying. Because it's the exact sort of thing that I've warned about on this show for such a long time, which is resisting from the right. And you saw this again with uh, when John Bolton was let go. The argument was, the argument wasn't, oh my God, thank God we dodged a bullet. But now, Mr. President, you need to commit to a non-interventionist position and de-escalate with all the countries that we're about to go to war with. No, the response from many in the media and many corporate Democrats was, oh, the administration is in disarray. And even on CNN, again, I saw headlines, I think it was Anderson Cooper, highest turnover in, in, you know, in modern American history when it comes to his administration. People keep leaving the administration. Yeah. So the criticism is, oh, so many people are leaving your administration. Look at this chaos. Look at this disarray. You should really make sure everything is orderly and you don't have high turnover. But that would mean you're saying keep John Bolton, keep the mega hawks. And obviously he has a terrible impact on the direction of our foreign policy, so why would you try to prod him to be like, don't fire these people? No, fire those people. The problem is that he ever hired John Bolton in the first place. That should be your criticism. Your criticism should be, oh my goodness, this guy belongs in The Hague. This guy's a war criminal. This guy was one of the main players that got us into Iraq. What are we doing here? Why would you hire him on the campaign trail? You were acting like you're non-interventionist at least half the time. So what are you doing? You're going to hire somebody who represents the exact opposite philosophy? Why? Why? Why would you do that? That's the criticism. The criticism is not, no, you should have kept him because then you wouldn't be in disarray. High turnover is bad. See, this is, and this is why people despise mainstream media. Trust in mainstream media is at an all-time low. Why? Because they don't believe anything. You know, in order to make substantive criticisms, you have to come from an ideological perspective. The difference between us and them is I actually admit what my beliefs are up front. They play hide the ball, and they act like they're being totally objective and totally neutral. No, you're not. You have a bias, and it's actually a lazy establishment bias. So this kind of stuff where you're just trying to burn Trump, like, I got him. I got him. You said really tough stuff, but then you didn't follow through. Aha! No, the criticism should just be, stop saying the really tough stuff because it's insane. That's the criticism. Not, why didn't you follow through on Lost and Loaded? Hmm? Maybe you should follow through on that. Maybe you should follow through on Fire and Fury. People aren't taking us seriously because you're yapping your trap and you're not following through. No, the real criticism is stop yapping your trap. Stop it. Don't do that. <laughs> That's terrible. That's stupid. That's dumb. I'm happy you didn't follow through. I'm happy. Listen, I'm happy Trump ended up being a hypocrite because once he said the terrible shit he said, that was best case scenario. Is don't do shit. Stop. Stop. Right now, by the way, just so everybody knows, with what's happening in Saudi Arabia with oil fields that were bombed, um, Trump announced on Twitter that, oh, we're tightening sanctions even further on Iran. I've never in my life been happier to see an announcement of sanctions. Why? Because that is like the the least military oriented response that he could have he could have come up with and he took that avenue so i was like oh thank god because i was i really thought oh my god this is it we're going to go to war with iran this is it right now it's going to happen because he trump tweeted that um you know initially after it happened waiting for verification on who did it we're locked and loaded 
and speaking to Saudi Arabia. Made it seem like Saudi Arabia is his boss. So I was like, oh, here we go. But no, thankfully, he was like, we're going to do sanctions. Now, the sanctions are terrible in their own right, in their own respect, but that's the least of all the bad options that I thought were humanly possible at this point in time. So, um, but Jesus, man, I can't. This stuff is, it's aging me at double the rate when I watch this stuff. Because this is like, say what you want about Fox News, and I have nothing but negative things to say about them. They are, they're not just the Republican Defense Network, which they are, they are that, but they also are, they also have an ideology, okay? Whereas CNN and MSNBC, it's not, they're not ideologically consistent, they're just lazy establishment hacks. They do have a bias in favor of the establishment perspective, but it's not, like, in the way that Fox News is a right-wing network, CNN and MSNBC are not left-wing networks. Don't get it twisted. Having this kind of, of, of you know, anti-Trump bias and, and these kinds of burns of him, that's not a left-wing perspective. A left-wing perspective is what you get here. The left-wing criticism of Trump is, stop making the goddamn threats in the first place. Not, hey, dude, you made the threats. Why are you not following through? Those are very different criticisms. So, and that's what drives me crazy, is that people are getting this misimpression. If they're not familiar with new media, and they're not familiar with maybe some, some of the good print outlets, that's the impression that they're getting, that these are your options. Your options are Trump or the people who believe in absolutely nothing in terms of policy and are just trying to hypocrisy burn him and, and argue against his position from an unprincipled standpoint. So those are your options. The lazy establishment bias hacks or the extreme right-wing insane people. Those are your options. And it's like, oh, my God, there are other options out there, okay? There is an actual left-wing perspective and a left-wing critique. So, sweet Jesus, I mean... This stuff drives me crazy. It drives me absolutely crazy. Aaron Burnett, Wolf Blitzer, Don Lemon, all these people, they're, they're not helping the anti-Trump cause like they think they are. They're not helping it at all. Because in order to successfully combat these committed ideologues on the far right, you need people who are going to provide a coherent left-wing vision and not just do stupid hypocrisy burns where the policy implications don't matter to them. Because those policy implications do matter in the real world. And the last thing you should do is prod this president to be more aggressive and more hawkish while maybe not even realize you're doing it. Okay, next. All right, Edward Snowden sat down for an interview, and it was absolutely incredible.
So Edward Snowden did a really, really fascinating interview with Brian Williams, and um, he's selling a new book, so he's doing, I guess, a little bit of a press tour here. But this was actually, to my surprise, a very detailed interview. And in this clip that you're about to see, he's going to lay out the capacity of the government to illegally spy and data mine. And this is like a, this is a stark reminder of the power that they really have. Because oftentimes we forget and we don't pay attention to it, but it's there. It's there, and they're not using it for good. They argue, oh, this is for national security. But as Snowden actually laid out quite eloquently later on in this interview, he said, no, it's about power, and it's about control. So look at what they have the capability of uh, doing, and be terrified. What today can the government do uh, to your phone and your laptop, the phone and laptop of any American? Um, what's the extent of the government's reach if they're determined to reach into your life? <laughs> uh, we could talk about this question for hours, <laughs> Brian, but we don't have time, so I'll, I'll try to summarize. Um, hacking uh, has increasingly become uh, what governments consider a legitimate investigative tool. They use the same methods and techniques as criminal hackers. And what this means is they will try to remotely take over your device. Once they do this, um, by detecting a vulnerability in, in the software that your uh, device runs, such as Apple's iOS or Microsoft Windows, they can craft a special kind of attack code called an exploit. They then launch this exploit at the vulnerability on your device which allows them to take total control of that device. Anything you can do on that device, uh, the attacker, in this case the government, can do. They can read your email. They can collect every document. They can look at your contact book. They can turn the location services on. They can see anything that is on that phone instantly and send it back home to the mothership. They can do the same with laptops. The other prong that we forget so frequently is that in many cases they don't need to hack our devices they can simply ask Google for a copy of our email box because Google saves a copy of that. Everything that you ever typed into that search box, Google has a copy of. Every private message that you've sent on Facebook, every link that you've clicked, everything that you've liked, they keep a permanent record of. Uh, and all of these things are available not just to these companies, but to our governments as they are increasingly deputized as uh, sort of miniature arms of government. What about enabling your microphone camera if you can do it they can do it uh it is trivial uh, to remotely turn on your microphone or to, to activate your camera so long as you have systems level access if you had hacked someone's device remotely anything they can do you can do uh, they can look up your nose, right? They can record what's in the room. The screen may be off as it's sitting on your desk, uh, but the device is talking all of the time. The question we have to ask is who is it talking to? What else do I need to say here? Now, it, you know, if you are inclined to believe, but terrorists, man, terrorists. I mean, that's really what this is about. No, because when, when the story initially broke, we got actually a bunch of stories over an extended period of time. And one of them was the NSA, you had people at the NSA spying on their significant others. 
And it was such a common practice, they had a term for it. It was called love int, short for love intelligence. And they would just violate the privacy of their significant others, hack into their devices, see what was going on. The idea, like the people who are running these systems are just people. They're not like this idea that what? They're part of this official entity that is the government, therefore they're on like a higher plane in terms of morality and ethics. No, they're people. Why would you trust a random person to have total access and control of your phone? Why is that even an option? And again, that's something later on Edward Stone goes on to point out. The issue is not even just, hey, how, how do we manage, how do we regulate the collection of this data, like what's allowed, what's not allowed. He says the issue is the data collection in and of itself. So there's no, there's no law that says that these, you know, um, social media companies or Internet companies can't, search engines, whatever it might be, that they can't keep, like, a permanent record of you. There's no law of that. There's no, like, oh, after a year, all that data needs to be deleted, and then it starts again, and after a year, it gets deleted again. He says they, they can take whatever, and there's no violation of the Constitution there. So the government could just ask them, hey, hook a brother up with some information on this person and this person, and they have a permanent fucking record of everything you've ever typed in. So he's saying not only do they have access to hack into any, you know, device you have, but also sometimes they don't even need to do that. They could just go right to Google and be like, help me out, or whoever it may be. Facebook, I'm sure all these companies are more than willing to bend over, take it from the government for a variety of reasons. So, like, we didn't, people didn't even realize. We blinked. We blinked, and all of a sudden we were in 1984. It just happened. It's, and it all, you know, in a weird way, it was somewhat voluntary because we're all more than happy to welcome these devices into our lives that uh, are then used, weaponized against us. And again, it's got nothing to do with terrorism, national security. It, it's about power. It's about control. It's about domination. It's about, you know, having this, like, centralized command center. Sorry about that beeping in the background. I know you guys know the story behind that already. But it's about having this centralized... It's about having this centralized command center where you can keep everybody in check. What happens in the future? Somebody wants to run for president, okay? And maybe they're into some weird um, sexual shit. How hard is it for the deep state, the intelligence agencies, to just, you know, leak a story about, oh, look at what this person's into, and then, boom, that alone is, could be massively embarrassing and then could hurt the person's chances. This can be used in so many nefarious ways that we haven't even really contemplated. And it's, uh, it's the end of privacy. That's what it is. It's the end of privacy. If you gave people an option, imagine you had an option. Everybody got to pick. Do you allow these companies and the government to access your device? Do you allow them to keep a permanent record of you or not? My guess is over 90% of people would say, no, they're not, no, they're not going to get to keep a permanent record of what I do. Absolutely not. That's so invasive. 
But, of course, we don't have that option to, like, opt out. And isn't it creepy now, too? I mean, this is a little bit of, this is a side point, but you could be having a conversation with somebody and bring up a product. And then next time you go online, you're being advertised that product. And it could literally have been a conversation in the privacy of your own home where none of you were using your, your smartphones, but you're having a conversation about whatever it might be, whatever product, you fill in the blank, and then you get... fucking hate this laptop, bro. And then you get an ad for that product that you never typed in to the search engine. You never, you know, mentioned directly on your phone. Or sometimes it happens that you'll be in text conversation and you'll say a product and then you get an advertisement for it. There's not... Bro, they got everything, all right? Not to sound Alex Jonesy on you, but... They have everything. And you're telling me this dude who let us know that the government's taken all this information, and by the way, illegally and unconstitutionally, not according to him, but according to some courts that have heard cases on this stuff, this guy is the enemy? No, no, this guy's the hero. This guy's the whistleblower. So it is uh, a shame that he's been persecuted and... He still can't come home because he wants to come home. And he lets that be known later on, but he would not be given a fair trial, so he hasn't come home. But they have all of the powers that you think they have. Everything you see in the movies, they have that, for real. (laughs) So we need a movement in this country that's a mass movement that also addresses this issue because... All the other stuff we fight for is massively important as well, but this is equally as important. The death of civil liberties, when none of us knew, it just happened one day. <laughs> and now here we are. Okay. All right, I got to fix this. As you know, I don't have a choice, and it must be fixed. It must be fixed. This is going to be a fucking issue all fucking day. God damn it. I'm going to give it like a minute here, because I need it to not beep again. And if it does beep again... I'm going to break some shit. Let me do one more and then we'll take a break. Don't beep on me, you little beepy bitch. Okay, here we go. So Edward Snowden is going to explain exactly how the government refuses to give him a fair trial. And I think this is really important because... The casual observer, including me, by the way, you look at what's going on and you go, I don't, like, he's right according to the law and according to the Constitution, so why doesn't he come home and stand trial? Wouldn't he win the case? Isn't it obvious that the NSA is illegally and unconstitutionally data mining all of our stuff, illegally spying on us, the FISA court is just a rubber stamp court, 
So there really is no process. There really is no like getting a warrant. This is just spying full stop illegally, unconstitutionally. So that you, you can be forgiven for thinking that because it's like, yeah, it's obviously that's correct. So why wouldn't he come home and just stand trial and win? Well, here's the answer. So, Ed Snowden, um, a lot of people in this country are probably curious, when was the last time you had substantive discussions about coming home to the United States, and would this still be your preference? Do you still refer to it as home? Uh, the United States will always be my home, um, and I'll always be willing uh, to come back uh, on a single condition, and I've, I've been quite clear about this over the years. Uh, this is that the government uh, guarantee that I have the right, and every whistleblower has the right, to tell the jury why they did what they did. Right? We can disagree. Uh, about whether this was right or wrong. We can disagree about whether this is good or bad. We can disagree about whether this is legal or illegal. That's right and proper in a democracy, but we have to agree that the jury is supposed to be the proper authority to ultimately decide was this right or wrong. And I hate to say it, but under current laws, um, that is explicitly forbidden uh, under the Espionage Act, which, as you know, is increasingly being used against the sources uh, of journalism instead of foreign spies. Uh, the law makes no distinction between someone who uh, tells a secret to a journalist uh, and someone who tells a secret to a foreign government. Uh, and, and so, uh, yeah, there, have not, there has not been any movement, unfortunately, on that conversation since the Obama administration when uh, I told um, the, the government that uh, all they need to do is give me the right of what we call a public interest defense. Uh, this is a fair trial, an open trial, where the jury hears what is happening and they decide, was this justified or not? Um, and un unfortunately, uh, then Attorney General Eric Holder responded and said, uh, we can't promise that. We won't promise that. We will promise not to torture you. Uh, unfortunately, I'd say uh, that's not quite enough. So do you understand that? The idea is we're going to handcuff the defense. Because his only defense, clearly, is, well, yeah, technically I broke the law, but the reason I broke the law was to expose that the government is violating the Constitution, which is the supreme law of the land. So that's the argument he has to make, because that's what the reality of the situation is. Yes, I took top secret, classified information, whatever, and I released it to the public. But the reason I release it to the public is because it's obviously something the public should know, and it's something that shouldn't be classified or top secret. I think people have a right to know that the government has totally taken away your Fourth Amendment right protection from unreasonable search and seizure, and they're data mining everybody, collecting information on everybody, no matter how innocent you are. So they're illegally and unconstitutionally spying on you, and so... That's why I'm leaking this information. I'm leaking it because I'm a whistleblower and I have a conscience and I know that this it's wrong and immoral and unethical and unconstitutional for the government to hide behind, oh, this is something the general public can't know. So that's why I'm releasing it. And since he would be tried under the Espionage Act, a law from 1917, by the way, they say, no, no, it doesn't. All that matters is that you were leaking information that's classified or top secret, 
the nature of that doesn't matter. Like the, what the exact specifics are of the thing that you're leaking don't matter. And it doesn't matter that you're giving it to a journalist for the public good as opposed to giving it to a foreign country to help them in a war. Like that's supposed to be the idea. Oh, the Espionage Act. What does that mean? Oh, it means like you're a spy and you're working for a foreign government and you infiltrated our government and you got some damning information and then you leak it to the government that we're at war with. That's what that's supposed to mean. Nobody, nobody, even Edward Snowden's harshest critics, nobody would say he's, you know, a spy working for a foreign government helping them out. That's just not true. Dude tried to resettle in fucking 27 other countries and then he had to settle on Russia because they were the only one who would take him and he's still criticizing Russia from inside Russia. So he's not a spy. He's not, that's utter nonsense. It's total insanity that they would even think of going after him with this law. So, and he's pointing it out. Listen, I want to come back. I want to stand trial, but they won't even allow me to make my obvious only defense, which is I did this because I'm a whistleblower, because I'm exposing that the government is violating the Constitution. By the way, it's not just him who says that. It's federal courts that have heard this already have said that. So he's not allowed to say that, though. He's not allowed to say, I did it for the public good, and I did it because the government was acting unconstitutionally. He's not allowed to say that at all. The only question in trial would be, did you leak classified information? Oh, you did? Okay, well, sorry. Now we're going to throw the book at you. And maybe you'll never get out of prison. Oh, God. They are viciously going after him. And, and um, Daniel Ellsberg, who was basically the Edward Snowden of a previous generation, who gave us the Pentagon Papers, which showed that we were massacring innocent civilians in Vietnam. Um, Daniel Ellsberg says, oh, yeah, whatever someone's doing is exactly like what I was doing. So today we all recognize and realize that Daniel Ellsberg is a hero. Everybody realizes that. But that's just because it's, he was right, but it's been years and years and years since he did what he did. So everybody kind of realized, okay, dude is right. But at the time, they said the same shit about him. How dare you expose our state secrets and what the government is doing? Are you working with the enemy? All that same stuff they said. Now we know he's a hero. Edward Snowden, let's cut the bullshit with Edward Snowden, okay? Let's cut the bullshit. Let's just all acknowledge now he's a hero and what he did was correct. And you're going to tell me, even under the Obama administration, it's supposed to be a lefty administration, oh, please, they were like, no, 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 come home, bro. It's all good. We'll just, you know, hit you with the espionage act. What? You should have been pardoning him, not saying, well, we're going to throw the book at you. So anyway, everybody go out and buy Edward Snowden's new book. But actually... That, that leads to the final point in this story, which is, guess what? The government is suing Edward Snowden for all the money that he's going to make with his book. You can't make this stuff up. Because they say, again, oh, you know, you're releasing this uh, classified information, or at the very least, it's you're talking about that information. So we're suing, and we're going to try to jack all of the profits from that book. They couldn't, they're like comic book villain evil, the government is, in how they're treating Edward Snowden, and how they're treating Julian Assange, and how they're treating Chelsea Manning. It's like comic book evil, and we see right through you. Okay, let's take a break when we come back. Neil Cavuto tried to take on Tulsi Gabbard on the issue of Saudi Arabia. 
And John Bolton has already started taking some pot shots to Trump since leaving the administration. So do not go anywhere. We'll be right back with all of that and much, much more.
Welcome to the jungle. Heart. Your dog didn't go nowhere. I'm right here. We ain't going nowhere. We ain't going nowhere. <clears throat> you can finish those lyrics in your own mind. What do you what do you think I'm your singer? Okay, so the BB McBeepington has calmed down a little bit. That's always a positive thing. Um been having camera issues recently. But uh we'll see how it worked out today. For some reason there's um an autofocus problem. Usually that autofocus is huge and uh worked really well, but hasn't been recently, but anyway. We'll get it all squared away like we always do at some point. Anyway, on to Tulsi Gabbard versus uh, Neil Cavuto. Let me set this up real proper for you. <clears throat> so Fox Business host Neil Cavuto tried to take on Tulsi Gabbard over her tweet calling Trump Saudi Arabia's bitch. Um... And in the process, Cavuto just came across as incredibly ignorant of global politics. All right, the president has already ordered increased sanctions following that attack uh, that the Iranians were now apparently behind, at least our intelligence says that, on Saudi Arabia. Democratic presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard wonders whether the president is doing our country fitting or Saudi Arabia's. It's hard to say. Uh, Congressman Berger, to have you. Thanks, Neil. It's good to see you. What what surprised the folks uh, is, is the degree to which you hammered that charge at the president, which you said you're not our, our pimp. What, what did you mean by that? Uh, well, let's, let's just uh, make sure that we're on the same page here and recognize the context of what I was responding to that the president tweeted out. And I just want to read you what he said in that tweet, saying that, uh, quote, we're waiting to hear from the kingdom as to who they believe was the cause of this attack and under what terms we would proceed. Uh, look, Neil, I'm a soldier, and I took an oath uh, as a soldier as well as as a member of Congress to support and defend our Constitution of the United States, to, to serve the American people. And to, it's a huge disgrace to hear our Commander-in-Chief basically put us in a position, put us, the American people, our men and women in uniform, our military assets, uh, in a position where we are servants of the Saudi Kingdom, standing by and awaiting their orders on how we should proceed. This but was is he saying that as much as, what, the, you know, they're looking into this, they're not marching orders here, they're, they're saying, they're, they're trying to ascertain who was behind that attack, and that is what I think he was waiting on. Uh, well, if Trump didn't mean what he said when he tweeted that out, that, you know, we've got to see under what terms we would proceed, then he needs to clarify what he said and actually say what he meant. He's the President of the United States. He's the Commander-in-Chief of the strongest military in the world. And I think he really needs to be clear. Uh, so far, and this was said a couple of days ago, right. he has not issued any kind of clarification. Uh, and so all we can presume is that he said what he meant in that tweet. All right. Uh, he has not responded to your allegations or even tweeted a response, but it, what you did say is, I've never engaged in hateful rhetoric against you or your family, never will, but you're offering our military assets to the dictator of Saudi Arabia to use as he sees fit is a betrayal of my brother and sisters in uniform who are ready to give our lives for our country, not the Islamist dictator of Saudi Arabia. The question I have for you then, Congresswoman, if you become president of the United States uh, and Saudi Arabia were attacked like it was here and apparently by Iran, would you not intervene? I would do what's in the best interest 
of our country. So a president Tulsa Gabbard would see Saudi Arabia as a bigger threat to our country than, than Iran. What I would like to see is Saudi Arabia ending their support for al-Qaeda, terrorist groups like al-Qaeda, no, who are the threat to the American people. I know, you're, you're turning now. my words around. No, 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 I, words I, want, around. I want to just be very clear. But, but you, you have a, a higher opinion of Iran than you do Saudi Arabia. No, 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 that's not at all what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. I'm focused on how we can best keep the American people safe on how we can make sure that we are uh, and we have our national security intact. And the and Saudis, so are, bigger threat, that the Saudis are bigger threat to that safety than Iran. I just want to be clear. The Saudis are directly supporting the very terrorist group that attacked us on 9-11 and that continue to pose a threat to the American people today. So if the president were to take action against Iran, with or without Saudi intelligence or help, that would be a bad move in your eyes? That would be a very bad move. It would not serve the interests of the United States. It would cost thousands more of my brothers and sisters in uniform their lives. It would cost us as taxpayers trillions of dollars more. It would make the Iraq war that I served in look like a picnic compared to the cost and the consequence and the devastation that would come about as a result of that war. Well, to speak of the fact that it would be unconstitutional, given the president would do that without that authority coming from Congress. She obliterated him there. Listen, in order to be a host on one of these main networks, <laughs> like, you have to be professionally obtuse. <laughs> That's what that is. He was like, ma'am, are you saying that Saudi Arabia is worse than Iran? Yeah? And she's like, more or less, she's like, yeah. <laughs> and he's like, oh, oh, goodness me. Yeah, dude, for the exact reason she said, Saudi Arabia is actively and directly supporting al-Qaeda. Again, I, I feel like very, very basic distinctions are not made in mainstream media. So, for example, Iran... The government of Iran is not good. Nobody's saying the government of Iran is good. What they are is a Shia theocracy. Now, again, say what you want about them, and I got a million critiques of the Iranian government. They are not funding and supporting al-Qaeda. They are not attacking the West. They're just not. They're just not. The people who are attacking the West, al-Qaeda and ISIS, they are Sunni fundamentalists. They are Salafists. So that's not like this. This part is not debatable. This part is not up in the air. So Iran poses no threat to the United States of America. Saudi Arabia, through their proxies of Al Qaeda and other jihadist groups that they're continually funding, both in Yemen and in Syria, they are a threat. Fifteen of the nineteen hijackers came on 9/11 came from Saudi Arabia, and Neil Cavuto's like, oh. Are you saying Saudi Arabia is bigger threat than Iran? Yes, they're the actual number one state sponsor of terrorism. Well, there actually there's an argument to be made that we are, <laughs> but if any of us, it's them. Okay, this idea that Iran and you hear this all the time in in mainstream circles. Iran is the number one state sponsor of terrorism. That's not true. That's not even close to true. And it's just. We want to do regime change there, so you get to ramp up propaganda and make it as extreme as possible. It's the same reason, by the way, why 
they were going nuts over Venezuela and saying that, and they were saying this on Fox News recently quite a bit, that Maduro and Venezuela are housing ISIS and working with ISIS or something. Why, why, why? Because if you're an official U.S. state enemy, so Iran and Venezuela are two perfect examples, North Korea is another one, the media is allowed to say whatever the fuck they want against you, and there's no pushback, because you're already an official state enemy, so when somebody like me comes along and goes, hey man, that's not quite true, what's the thing that they say back immediately? Oh, I guess so you say you like Iran? You like dictators? You like North Korea? You like Venezuela? Is that it? You're pro-Maduro, aren't you? You're pro-Maduro. So, but see, here's the thing. When people try to hit me with that, I don't give a fuck what they say about me. That's why this show exists. I'll tell you the truth no matter what. But other people in mainstream circles, they don't want to be tarred with that. They don't want to get the scarlet letter of like, oh, we think you're pro-fucking Iran or North Korea or Venezuela or whatever the fuck it might be. So people don't push back. Look how viciously she gets smeared for stating obvious things. Anybody who knows politics and is willing to be minimally honest about it will tell you, of course Saudi Arabia is a bigger threat than Iran. Where's the debate? So um, I think that was awesome. And I also think Neil Cavuto is playing dumb on purpose when he's acting like, well, I don't think Trump was really saying that he was going to do whatever Saudi Arabia wants. That's what the tweet says. Waiting for verification, locked and loaded. Like the whole point is I'm waiting to hear what we should do next. That's exactly what he was saying. Now, you could say, hey, he still gives himself a potential veto card to say, I don't want to do it. And obviously that is the case because he didn't attack. What he did is he just increased sanctions again on Iran. Um, but what he said was crystal clear, and it does imply, like, yeah, I'm kind of waiting for my boss to get back to me. And, you know, we got two bosses. We got um, uh, Mohammed uh, bin, bin Salman. We got the prince, Mohammed bin Salman. And we got uh, Netanyahu. Those are the ones. Oh, and by the way, there was just a wee election in Israel, <laughs> and he's in a wee bit of trouble, if I don't say so myself. They're dead locked. They're, it's super tight. So he might not be prime minister, but we'll see. Anyway, um, Neil Cavuto, you're a mess. You're a joke. Tulsi, the advice I would give to Tulsi is, because there was a brief moment. She did a great job there, okay? But here's my advice to her. There are certain times when if, if you push back enough on somebody, even somebody who's really intelligent and knows what they're talking about. Usually people have a little brief moment of like, am I crazy? Like, am I the one that's crazy here? And there was a brief moment there with Tulsi where I got that sense where she was almost like, like, am I the crazy one here? What I would say to her is, no, you go in the other direction. You double down, you triple down, and also get arrogant about it. That's what I would do in that situation. Like, I would almost start berating him for being so obtuse. Yeah, that's what I would do. I'd be like, oh, so you think Iran did 9-11? <laughs> so in a situation like this, actually the way you make headlines in a situation like this is you flip it back on him 100% because he's so wrong, so wrong. And, but he's, he's acting like, oh, ma'am, did you really go there? So you got to, you know, pedal to the metal in this situation, and you press back on him, and then you make headlines again, because she made headlines for the Trump is Saudi Arabia's bitch thing, but then you make headlines again when you school him. Now, again, she did a really good job here, she schooled him, but I'm just saying I would have put the pedal to the metal a little lower, and I wouldn't have had that, that flash of like, wait, am I the crazy one? No, I would have went for his jugular. So, but either way, it, it was a good job here, and um, this is something all the Democrats should jump on board with. 
He is Saudi Arabia's bitch. He is doing their bidding. And there's also a conversation to be had. It's not just for geopolitical reasons. It's not just for that. That's part of it. He's partly their bitch because that's the way that, you know, we've had this longstanding deal with them and they're an ally of ours. But it's also because they're paying him massive amounts of money at his hotel. It's true. So violation of the emoluments clause, he's massively corrupt. If it was Hillary Clinton, like they did with the Clinton Foundation, taking money from all these foreign governments and then doing favors for them, everybody points it out. Goes, look at that. Look, look, she's corrupt. Look what they're doing. It's the same thing with Trump. Taking so much money from the Saudi government and then doing favors for them. I also believe that doesn't affect you. Of course it affects you. You're human. The same way it affected Hillary and Bill Clinton, it affects you. So all this stuff is incredibly relevant and it needs to be talked about more. Now I'm going to give you John Bolton's pot shots on Trump. So John Bolton's pot shots on Trump have begun. Former National Security Advisor John Bolton took aim at the Trump administration's foreign policy strategy on Wednesday at a closed-door lunch, reportedly ripping President Trump in all but name. Politico reported that Bolton tore into the president's effort to negotiate with North Korea and Iran, which he warned were doomed to failure and also blamed Trump for not taking stronger action after Iranian forces downed a U.S. spy drone earlier this year. He ripped Trump without using his name several times, one anonymous attendee of the lunch told Politico. The White House did, did not immediately return a request for comment on Bolton's reported remarks from the Hill. Some of the former White House officials' strongest remarks were reportedly reserved for Trump's called-off meeting with top Taliban officials at Camp David, which Trump announced within days of the anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Bolton reportedly called for, for or excuse me, re- reportedly called plans for the meeting disrespectful to 9/11 victims and their families. Attendees told Politico, adding that it sent a terrible signal to U.S. allies. Told you. You go back and you watch. I don't remember what segment it was in, but I had said that my hunch was the straw that broke the camel's back was. Um, Trump trying to talk to the Taliban on the 9-11 anniversary. I think that that was a bridge too far for John Bolton. And he really was like, I got, I got to get out because he, to him, that's heresy. Um, and I think what was going on in Trump's mind is if I get some sort of deal on the 9-11 anniversary to like withdraw, and again, it's not a withdrawal because he wanted to leave 9,000 troops there. So that's not a withdrawal, but he would pretend like it is. And then he would be like, see, on 9-11's anniversary, your amazing president got an amazing deal. And we're going to get out of Afghanistan. It's going to be tremendous. So I think he wanted the accolades, but John Bolton being the super hawk that he is, even the optics of the Taliban coming to the U.S. on the 9-11 anniversary, that drove him crazy. By the way, my opinion on that matter is very simple. I think we can just get out without making any sort of deal. We've been there for how long now? 18 years in Afghanistan? Just get out. Just get out. There's no, like... Let's talk to the right people and make sure that we have everything planned. No, get out. Just get out. We shouldn't shouldn't have been there in the first place. Now, I understand if you wanted to go after Os- Osama bin Laden, that's perfectly fine. But the idea that you do that with a full-out ground invasion is like, what? So, anyway. Um, now, look at the rest of what he said here. 
because it's all what we knew every step of the way, which is why Bolton tried to sabotage it when he said, oh, the talks with North Korea and Iran are doomed to failure. Why are they doomed to failure, John? Here, I'll answer the question for you, because your criteria for a deal are insane. So John Bolton would say, no, for Iran, no nuclear power whatsoever under any circumstances at all. What if it's for power for their power grid, John? No, we're against that. What if it's for research and development, John? No, we're against that too. What if the enrichment level is significantly below weapons-grade enrichment, John? No, we're against that. What if the IAEA still goes in there all the time and regulates on a regular basis and makes sure that they don't enrich above? Nope, we're still against that. We want none, no, nothing at all. And, by the way, what John Bolton threw in to boot was, we also want to take away your conventional weapons as well. Hold on, hold on, hold on. You want to take away not just the nuclear enrichment, even when it's not for weapons. You want to take away all nuclear enrichment of all types for civilian use as well, and the conventional weapons. See, now, let me explain to you what this means. This is John Bolton fucking with them and saying, we're going to topple you. He said it, what was it, with North Korea? He said, we're going to do the Libyan model. You took Gaddafi's weapons, and then you toppled him. So you're you know, broadcasting to Kim Jong-un, we'll take your weapons, and then we'll topple you. Guys, understand, his whole point, his whole existence was, I'm going to sabotage any movements away from war because he wants war. All he's ever wanted is war. Um, so it's, it's so obnoxious, too. And to Trump, congratulations, buddy. See, this is what you get. Trump on the campaign trail, at least half the time, was Mr., you know, we're going to get out of all these places, going to stop rebuilding the Middle East and whatnot, going to, you know, rebuild our country here at home. And then you hire Uber Hawk, Gina Haspel, Mike Pompeo, John Bolton to surround you. Why? 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 Either because you don't really believe any uh, believe in anything serious, like you don't actually believe in non-interventionism, or you think that, and he's kind of hinted at this previously, in Trump's mind, he thinks that, you know, oh, you either use your heart or you use your brain. And he said this about Melania when Melania tried to prod him to take, like, more refugees or something. I forget the exact issue. But it was something where Melania was correct. And Trump was like, we've got to have a big heart, got to have a big heart, but we also need to use our a brain. And so in his mind, the more hawkish you are, the more aggressive you are, the more pro-violent you are, the more intelligent you are. That's how, that's how he thinks about it. Like, if you want to use muscle, if you want to use the military, if you want to use violence, that's smart. But if you want to, that, that's using your brain. But if you want to do something like uh, invite people in to the country, have refugees, you know, make sure immigrants get treated well, that's using your heart. Your heart can get you in trouble. It almost reminds me back to the first uh, season of The Walking Dead when it's sh like the shame mentality versus, um, what's his face? Main character dude. I don't know why I'm blanking on this now. <laughs> How funny. I've, I've watched so many episodes, so many um, seasons of that show. And Rick, there it is, Rick. And I forgot, I blanked on his name for a second there. But anyway, um, congratulations, Don. See, you should have never hired him in the first place. You don't hire somebody like that. And the af now, after the fact, he's bringing up all the things that should have prevented him from hiring Bolton in the first place. He was talking about, oh, he got us into Iraq, you know, how did that work out? Yes, exactly, how did that work out? So why the hell did you hire him? And now he's going to be taking pot shots at you from now until the cows come home because he wanted to do all these wars. 
Now, Trump escalated massively with all of these countries, and we still might end up going to war with some of these countries. Don't get it twisted. But because he hasn't already ground invaded, Bolton's going to be taking pot shots at him, and he's, I guarantee you at some point he's going to do a media tour, and he's going to go after Trump. That's what's going to happen for sure. So Trump bought it upon himself, man. You invited this absolute war criminal massive hawk into your administration, and these are the results. Okay. All right, let's go to Laura Ingram. Let me set this up for you, you skinny little bitches. So Laura Ingram is an embarrassment. Um, her whole thing is, <laughs> LOL, have I triggered you on the left? Have I triggered you? You need a safe space? Is that what you need a safe space? Am I doing a microaggression? Like, her whole thing is like, aha, triggered you, liberal. And her whole identity is based around that. And it's so hollow and vapid and vacuous and sad that, like, that's how, that's the lens through which she views her entire ideology and worldview. It's opposite of them. That's it. There's no, like, independent thought and, like, hey, what do I think of this actual issue? No. It's what do those guys think? Aha, I'm the opposite. Oh, gotcha. Stupid liberals, stupid lefties. So um, Ingram did a segment on her loathsome show here where she's going to fearmonger about a move in California to close for-profit prisons. We warned you last week that California is the incubator for the left's wildest ideas. And the state legislature recently passed a bill banning for-profit prisons in the state. Sounds like a lofty goal. Well, that includes four ICE detention facilities that can hold up to 4,500 illegals each. Now, we all know the real reason for this. Open borders. Here's what the head of an activist group behind the bill told a local outlet. People do not need to be transferred. We've had closures in the state of California, and we were able to have just inhumane closures where many people were released to their families. Yeah, the nonviolent ones were released to their families. That's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. They, like, they go to this open borders thing, and they're the only ones who ever talk about an issue like that, ever. No Democratic candidate for office at any level of government is, is like, I'm pro-open borders. None of them. None of them. The position on the left overwhelmingly is, yes, we can have a border and there can be some sort of a process. But let's not be vicious assholes and dicks and criminals in our own right. So in other words, don't put kids in cages. Don't put kids in cages. Don't overly militarize the border in a way where, you know, you take away people's basic human rights, allow people to actually look for asylum, accept actual refugees from fucking war-ravaged countries and drug war-destroyed countries. Like, these are not, this is not hard. Can there be a process? Can it be orderly? Yes. But let's be logical and reasonable and humanitarian in our approach. 
That's the position overwhelmingly held on the left. Even the ones they claim, oh, you're for open borders. That's Julian Castro is the one that they always go to because he's made arguments that sound at face value like that. But then when he describes it, it's not. It's not open borders. He wants to make it a misdemeanor, which is what it is right now. He wants to change that to a civil offense, which is still a crime. But the only difference is you stop the family separations. That's the only difference. So when they talk about shutting down, and also shutting down ICE facilities, uh, private ICE facilities, by the way, you want to know why they would do such a thing? Oh, I don't know. Maybe it's because there's a, um, you know, there's a trial going on right now in court where there's a giant lawsuit against these private ICE facilities because they're doing slavery, literally, forced labor. So Laura Ingram is arguing in favor of ICE detention facilities that are doing literal slavery. That's what she's doing. Just so you know. Just so you know. And uh, the whole point of this is to fearmonger about closing these for-profit ICE detention facilities and for-profit prisons. Notice how there, she's not forming uh, an argument in favor of those things. Her whole point is, oh, California is the laboratory for far-left ideas. This is obviously stupid. <laughs> That's not a point. That's not a point. Why would anybody have, why would any country have for-profit prisons? What you're doing now is you're incentivizing people to get locked up for crimes that aren't really crimes. Because if it's for profit, then you want more asses and more beds because then you, management makes more money. The business makes more money. So what happens? Well, it's a result of for profit prisons. You had lobbyists for the for profit prisons lobbying um, politicians to come up with more laws. So one of the ones they came up with is the three strikes law. Three strikes is not like there's, you know, some something written in the in the laws of nature that says, like, well, obviously you're irredeemable if you've had three felonies, no matter how minor. No, they it was a choice that they made to give people life in prison, even if it's for three incredibly minor offenses, give them life in prison. Again, why? It all ties back to profit. So this is what she's arguing in favor of. The whole idea of a for-profit prison should irk you to no end. Because it's, that's a function of society, something that tax dollars need to fund, and something that exists, the infrastructure for it exists as a matter of necessity. When you make it a business, when you add the profit motive, man, you don't see the perverse incentive structure that sets up to get more people arrested for crimes that aren't even really crimes. And also, by the way, the conditions are terrible because the rules are much more lax. We've covered stories on this show going back years about how they just feed prisoners this rat-tainted food. People were getting sick left and right. Why? Because they don't want to spend more money to make sure that people eat food where, you know, they are uh, giving people their human rights and they're not, you know, making them violently sick. So all that they cut so many corners and they don't treat people with dignity and respect, not saying the public prisons are that much better, but they're certainly a little bit better, certainly a little bit better, and there are better rules. And also, by the way, oftentimes with private prisons, they end up paying, taxpayers still pay for it in private and public prisons, but the private ones, they mark it up even more. Like taxpayers sometimes end up paying more for private prisons when the whole original idea is we got to go to private so that we can uh, reduce costs, but that doesn't happen in many cases. So this is absolutely the right move from California. All private prisons throughout this country should be shut down. 
Now, does that mean you should release violent offenders? No, but it does mean you should release nonviolent offenders because they shouldn't be in there in the first place. Certainly nonviolent drug offenses, release them all. So Andrew Yang took a bold stance that I think he deserves massive, massive credit for. So let me set this up for you. Here we go. So Andrew Yang went on Rising, and uh, he was asked about the drug war uh, by Crystal Ball here. And his answer is pretty solid. I would decriminalize opiates that are being used uh, for personal use and aren't being distributed. So in addition to decriminalizing marijuana, I would decriminalize opiates for personal use. That's a big deal. I mean, does that include heroin? Yes, it does. I mean, at this point, what's happened is you had this OxyContin addiction that has morphed into fentanyl and heroin, right. which are frankly more accessible and sometimes less expensive uh, than the OxyContin that started the addiction chain. Yeah. Are you familiar with the Portugal model, what they've done? Because it's very similar to what you're saying. They essentially decriminalized all drug use, including heroin. They have injection sites where people can go and be dosed, but also have access to treatment rather than being thrown in prison. We're not talking about dealers here. We're talking about individual addicts. I mean, is, yeah. that, is that essentially, is that consistent with what you're talking about here? Yeah, I was inspired by Portugal's success, where um, in the wake of this change in approach, they saw a massive reduction in both overdose rates and substance abuse rates. So I'm for safe injection sites, safe consumption sites, uh, and I'm for referring addicts to treatment instead of jail and letting them know this. That was awesome. And, and that was bold. Because he was asked very clearly, what about heroin? And he was like, yeah, yeah. So in other words, he believes as a matter of principle that, I'm not joking, this isn't a criminal issue. And I'm not muddying the waters in, in any way. This is not a criminal issue. And in his mind, it's more of a medical issue. It's more of a rehab issue. So I'm not going to arbitrarily draw the line at certain substances and not others. I think drug addicts need treatment, and I think that we should copy the model that has worked, and that, of course, is Portugal. And um, they've gone the furthest left on this issue compared to everybody. But massive credit to Andrew Yang there. Now, I actually, and you guys know this, I would maybe even go a little bit further. I think that the beginning of the conversation is where he, where he is now, which is legalize, tax, and regulate marijuana decriminalize all substances. I would go a step further and legalize. Now, decriminalize is just, you know, you're not going to go to prison. That's what decriminalize is, very simply. Legalize means it's actually legal to sell these products. So what he's saying is, no, it could still be illegal to sell the products, but certainly for the user, certainly for the addicts, they're not criminals. They get help if they want help including for all these different substances. You know, I've always been a fan of uh, legalization, taxation, and regulation because I think that that's the only way you can really fully obliterate the black market for these substances. And then by extension, that's the only way you massively reduce the crime rate. Now, I also think that if you go down that road, you have to have, as part of Medicare for All, mental health facilities and rehab facilities 
So along with standard health care, those things I think should be included in standard health care packages, and we should be able, people should just be able to go to rehab. So treatment, I agree with him, is the answer, but I would just go a little bit further and do legalization, taxation, or regulation. Um, where, and that also allows you, because a lot hinges on that last word, regulation, that then allows you to have laws when it comes to dosing. And you actually educate people so much more than now when stuff is on the black market. Look what happened with uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. He went to, he, he was a heroin addict, and he went to go buy heroin, and the normal dose that he would give himself, it was cut with fucking fentanyl. And so he died. That stuff is like an elephant tranquilizer. So he, thought, he took what he thought was his normal dose, and he died. Not because he OD'd on heroin, but because the heroin was laced with fentanyl because it's made on the black market and it's underground and it's cut with all types of terrible stuff, and then that's why he died. So in my opinion, legalization, taxation, and regulation is the way to go. However, he's the closest to my position on this issue of everybody in the race because Bernie has made clear that he's only talking about marijuana when it comes to legalization. And then, you know, when uh, he went on Rising and Crystal pushed him a little bit further on other substances, he, was like, he said, I'm not there yet. Whereas Andrew Yang is saying very openly, decriminalize all drugs. So nobody should be locked up when it comes to some sort of addiction issue, when it comes to using these substances. And he deserves a lot of credit because, again, can you imagine? I just want you to reflect on this for one second. Could you think of uh, Kamala Harris making that argument? Not in a million years. I can think of, you know, Bernie in a year and a half or two years saying something like this, but he hasn't yet. He hasn't yet. But definitely none of the boring centrist candidates, establishment candidates, would ever make this argument. And that's why it brings me nothing but joy to see Andrew Yang in some polls is beating Kamala Harris, who's like the darling of the media who they've been trying to push on us since the very beginning, who they want her to win. But Andrew Yang is out polling He's out polling at least like when you looked at the, you know, the entire Democratic race to this point, he's out polling like at least 10 establishment characters. And I think that's absolutely wonderful because you like to have a race where you have all these different options and all these different ideologies that are present where the people actually believe what they're talking about and they actually care and they're making their argument for their philosophy as to why you should elect them. I love that. I love that. So you have candidates who, who mean something, like Bernie means something. He has all these reasons he's running. Tulsi means something. Her biggest issue, she, she tells you, is foreign policy, and I want to put this front and center. Um, in the case of Andrew Yang, his biggest thing is UBI. But also, isn't it interesting when you have candidates who genuinely believe in something that they often surprise you, and they surprise you in a positive direction? And that's really what this is. So... Hopefully, this helps move the Overton window a little bit. Unfortunately, I don't know if it will because there's still massive bias against every outsider in the media. So I don't know how much uh, you know, this, uh, of play this will get. And if they do cover it, it'll be negative. They'll act like it was a terrible thing he said. But no, he's absolutely correct. So you should, de- at the very least, decriminalize all these drugs because it is not a criminal issue. By the way... There was a time in U.S. history where none, none of these substances were criminal. It was in like, I, I don't want to, don't quote me on it because I don't remember, but it was in 19-something. I don't know whether it was like 1910 or 1920 or 1930. Somewhere in there, 
is when we had our first drug law, where it was criminalization. And, mind you, it was strongly tied to racism because they saw, oh, Mexicans use this marijuana stuff, so let's criminalize that so we can criminalize a Mexican lived experience, a Hispanic lived experience. When it came to opium, it was Chinese immigrants. They would have the opium den. And apparently uh, you had white people were scared that their kids would go into the opium den, and so they criminalized it. So the way that all this stuff developed, it's not like you had people all stand around and it was like scientists who were being objective and they're like, well, this this, uh, this substance by itself is very, very damning and very bad for you, but this one is okay. I feel like that's what a lot of people naively think in the back of their mind subconsciously. Like, oh, obviously it's some, somewhere along the line there was a, a logical reason for this. No. It was all cultural bigotry fed into it. Why do you, like, whiskey is definitely worse for you than marijuana. But why is whiskey legal and marijuana is not legal? Because when you go back to the origins of it, it was white people who loved their alcohol. Not saying others didn't, but it was definitely primarily them, predominantly them. And you had, it was brown people who were smoking the marijuana. So this is where it all stems from. So why not change this incredibly primitive, archaic, and dumb system? And Andrew Yang absolutely hit the nail on the head here. Massive credit to him for coming out in favor of decriminalizing all drugs and copying Portugal's model. Time for a very, very scary ad. So there's a group called Sandy Hook Promise, and they released an ad for the back-to-school season, and it's definitely a shock to the system. happens, which is why it's so creepy. I think oftentimes there's a failure of imagination for people to really grasp what goes on with these school shootings, but it's real as a heart attack, dude. 
that happens, when you see it like that, I think it it definitely impacts people pretty strongly because it, it makes it so much more real for them. Um, and, you know, I don't have kids, but I can imagine my reaction would be even stronger if I did. Because you have kids and you know the numbers, you know how often this happens in the U.S., you know that this is a common occurrence, you know it's basically a monthly thing, and you have kids, and you look at your kids in the face and you think that because we can't move on this very basic issue, their lives are in danger. Oh, it is absolutely infuriating. And we both know the main reason why nothing gets done on this issue is corruption. Because over 90% of Americans want a universal background check. Every single, like, standard gun policy reform polls well over 50%. Uh, ban on high-capacity magazines, assault weapons ban, um, some sort of licensing system, uh, mental health checks, all this stuff polls well over 50%. But we don't get it. Why? Because the entire Republican Party in Washington, D.C. is bought by the NRA and the gun manufacturers. And they really do block any and all reform. But even when it comes to the Democrats, even though they don't take NRA money, and so they're not corrupt on this issue, they're also just politically ineffectual and weak, and they don't know how to get their agenda through, even when their agenda is massively popular. So it's the perfect storm of, like, Democratic incompetence and, uh, you know, Republican corruption that leads to a situation where it's permanent gridlock on an issue where Americans are not divided. Guys, even a majority of Republicans want universal background checks. Even a majority of NRA members want universal background checks. This is not a controversial issue. It's the leadership of the NRA bought by the gun manufacturers who then buy the politicians who are really controlling policy on this issue in this country. And it is 100% infuriating. And, you know, that, I'm sure the reaction to this is going to be mixed because you're going to have everybody who's hardcore on the side of guns is going to look at this and hate it. Um, and you're going to have some people even who might agree with the message say, oh, it's tasteless, so why did you run this? But, I mean, again, I, the reason why I think this is definitely a defensible ad is because it just gives you a little bit of insight into the fact that this stuff actually happens, and maybe when you see it, it shakes you out of complacency. Because it does, man. Shootings like this happen all the time. And uh, it's a slap in the face when you show, like, oh, some fun music, some back-to-school stuff, look at us, and then you start hearing the shots and seeing the injured people. So I think the whole point was to shake people out of their complacency. And it largely worked. This made headlines in uh, quite a bit of places. So certainly an issue we should move on. Um, But it's sad to say I'm not holding my breath. So believe it or not, CNN did a really solid segment in the Rust Belt, and uh, they accidentally revealed what might be the most important thing in winning a presidential election. 
too many towns that symbolize the boom and bust in the Rust Belt. Manesson, Pennsylvania is one of them. Once a thriving steel town with a population of 25,000, but now the steel mills shutter and just a fraction of the people remain. If Manesson is a poster child of the steel industry's good times and bad, is Manesson now going to become the poster child of the president's trade war and a failed campaign promise when the president said he'd bring that industry back? CNN's Vanessa Yurkiewicz went to find out. I'm going to look at the mill because I got so many memories. It's been 32 years since John Gollum worked in this steel mill in Manesson, Pennsylvania. Once the lifeblood of this town, now it's gone. He still wears his jacket to remember. But this is all I have left after all those years I had with the mill. I gave my heart and soul. And there's many men and women who did the same as I, especially in Pittsburgh, in Pittsburgh area. And it's like we were spat upon. Which is why this Democrat voted Republican for the first time after then-candidate Donald Trump came to town. Many of these areas have still never recovered and never will unless I become president. And then we had Donald Trump come here and profess about re reviving American steel. And that's just what all of us steel workers wanted to hear. Then when he was elected, he pulled a Houdini on us. He disappeared. <laughs> Manesson was a thriving steel town, but it's lost half its population since the mill closed in the 80s. Today, it's coming apart at the seams. The poverty rate is 60% higher than the national average, and now what little business remains is being threatened by the trade war. But all from China. They're all from China, right. yeah. Buzzy Byron also worked at the steel mill, but he's found new life in his fireworks shop and sports apparel store in town. Both will be hit with a 15% tariff. Nobody wants to see the price goes up. I don't care what it is. You know, you don't want to come in here this year and spend 10 bucks for this and come back next year and spend 15 And I feel bad because I know all of these people, and I don't, you know, I, I feel bad that I'm not going to let you pay that bigger, higher price. The trade war is expected to cost American families $1,000 more each year. That is something that residents that are already struggling can't afford. We need jobs here, but we need jobs that fit the 21st century. We were founded to help supplement what Pittsburgh was doing with SEAL, and I think that we could play that role again. While the mayor sees opportunity, Gollum has lost hope. He says voters in the Rust Belt like him believed President Trump had their back, helping to elect him. Now, he feels lied to. If you had an opportunity to see the president again, uh, if he came back to Manhattan, Pennsylvania, what would you say to him? He wouldn't speak to me. He Why? wouldn't speak to me because I'd have to tell him the truth. Where are your promises? Damn. Now, I think the most important point here is none of that stuff had to happen. Because oftentimes there's this trade fatalism that's advocated by many people, not just, you know, free traders on the right, but also the so-called free traders on the corporate democratic side, the centrist side. Um, all of this is avoidable. It's a matter of policy that led to the degradation and the destruction of all these places in the Rust Belt. And there's some very simple policy proposals that could help move us back in the right direction. Now, it is a fair point to say, well, will they ever regain, you know, what they had previously with the exact same industries? To which I would respond, no. So you can't be, you can't put all your eggs in one, eh, eggs. You can't put all your eggs in one basket. 
Um, and you can't have, like, only car companies, only steel mills or whatever in, in certain places. You do have to diversify the economy in these areas. But, however, you certainly can help, at least in part, revitalize and do it with these, uh, you know, old school industries that were there. So, for example, one of the things you do is what Bernie Sanders has been talking about doing, which is saying, we will give zero federal contracts to companies that outsource. So if you want a very lucrative U.S. government contract, you just can't outsource. You could do, you know, a Buy America executive order, which says anytime the federal government buys anything, they have to buy made in the U.S.A. Right now, we pretend like that's the case, but it includes the USA and all of our allies. So it's really not made in the USA. But you could sign that executive order. That's the executive order that Trump was acting like he was going to sign, and he never signed it. Instead, he did a, a symbolic uh, Buy, America week, or Buy America week or whatever, where he just highlights at the White House, here are all the products made in America, and they do this weird little festival thingy. But there's no there there. That's not actually bringing back jobs. That's not, you can, I mean, listen, you could find or tax outsourcers. You could give people, um, you know, businesses massive tax credits or rebates for buying products that are made in America. There's a lot of ways to go about this. And we don't need to have this insane race to the bottom that we're currently engaged in, where the whole point is, let's outsource jobs, let's send them to Bangladesh, let's pay people pennies on the dollar, let's import the products, and the products will be uh, significantly less expensive. But there are consequences to that. If I told you all you had to do was pay 57 cents more for a product, and that means you can have you know, good-paying union jobs in this country and job creation in this country, I'm sure you'd say, hell yeah, I'll do that. I would absolutely love to do that. So um, there are very simple, clear ways to bring back jobs. And this is why, regardless of what your favorite issue is and your number one issue, and by the way, I have them too. At the very top of my list is probably Medicare for All. If it's not the top, it's certainly top three. But fact of the matter is, when it comes to winning a general election for president, this might actually be the most important issue. Free trade, outsourcing, uh, jobs and the economy in the Rust Belt. Now, you could say, hey, man, I don't like that that's the system we have. That's fair enough, but that is the system that we have. And I think it's rather empirical to say that this is the most important issue because, you know, whoever takes the Rust Belt takes the general election. And if you have a populist left candidate like Bernie, you win the general election because Trump's fake populism, they're sick of it. They're totally sick of it. And you just heard them tell you, guy voted for Trump because of what Trump said, and he didn't follow through. Now, by the way, another great point, and I'll end on this in this segment, but um, Ro Khanna is trying, to bring, excuse me, is trying to bring tech jobs to the middle of the country. And again, this is the kind of innovation that's positive because you have, I like a two-pronged approach. The let's, uh, let's crack down on outsourcers, let's incentivize job creation and industry in the U.S. I like that approach, but I also like the kind of approach of let's bring new jobs, let's incentivize tech companies to bring new jobs. Instead of outsourcing them, send them to the middle of the country, and then we can have new jobs of the future as well in the middle of the country. 
I think you need a two-pronged approach. I think that's the only way to try to fix um, the system, which is obviously in rapid decline. And um, you don't see enough going on at this moment with this administration in this direction. In fact, as you guys know, because I've pointed out this fact many times, in Trump's first year in office, 93,000 jobs were outsourced. There's a guy who campaigned on stopping outsourcing. And there were more jobs outsourced in his first year than in Obama's last year. So he ain't doing enough, and he ain't doing the right things. And as you can see, and this story pointed out, the tariffs, which are in theory supposed to help with this job creation, if anything, it's hurting. And there is a net job loss as a result of it. So the way he's going about doing it is not the right way. And, um, yeah, CNN actually deserves credit. I can't believe those words are coming out of my mouth. But for this particular segment, they deserve credit. This is a really important thing here that lays out a very real dynamic in the country that needs to be addressed. All right, so now let's end with a couple stories on Trump here. So remember when Trump pretended he was all anti-corruption and uh, he said he's, I'm, I'm self-funding my campaign. It's unbelievable. It's tremendous. I don't want your money. I don't want your money. I got my own money. I have to tell you. Uh, well, this is just a reminder that it was a ruse, and he's full of it. Wall Street billionaire John Paulson is hosting a top-dollar fundraiser for President Trump's 2020 campaign, while the president is in New York next week. Paulson, who made his billions betting against the U.S. housing market before the Great Recession of 2008, was an early supporter of Trump during the 2016 presidential election after he received the Republican Party nomination. He is also an economic advisor to the president. Uh, tickets to the fundraiser are currently going for $2,800 each, Fox Business reported. Trump will be in New York City addressing the United Nations before attending the fundraiser. So this is a old school approach, $2,800 a pop. All those people in that room are going to be Wall Street assholes. And um, this is them buying influence. That's exactly what this is. So remember, Trump used to go after Hillary Clinton for this exact kind of stuff. That, oh, my God, she takes money from Goldman Sachs. She takes money from Wall Street. She's going to do their bidding. Why don't you release the transcript? So on and so forth. For the record, he was right about every single thing he said on that issue. But in his heart of hearts, he wants to be Hillary Clinton. Why? Because Hillary Clinton is beloved by the establishment. He wants that recognition. He wants that pat on the head from his fellow elites. He loves it. He loves his fellow elites. There's nobody who wants to be accepted by Hollywood and by moneyed interests and by powerful people more than Donald Trump. His whole existence was built around that. Well, the only way he could have gotten elected president was by pretending like he's not part of the club. But then the second he became president, he did everything he could to serve the club. Hence, his massive deregulation bill. Okay, that's exact, the exact kind of stuff that got us into the subprime mortgage crisis and Great Recession. He did it. 
hence his tax bill, which was nothing but a giant giveaway to corporate America and a giant giveaway to the rich. It raises taxes on everybody that makes $75,000 a year or less over a decade. So the only cuts that are permanent are the ones for the rich and corporations. He gave them exactly what they wanted at every step of the way. This is why Larry Kudlow is his economic advisor. Larry Kudlow has never been right about anything ever. He was a CNBC host, and he was wrong about everything, including he couldn't foresee the, the crash of 2008. He was pretending like everything was awesome. This is a guy who argues against a living wage. And Donald Trump picked this guy to be his advisor. So just know, because he's going to go right back into his fake populist tap dance in 2020 and act like he's, I'm fighting for the little guy, the forgotten man and woman will never be forgotten again. I don't want their money. I'm self-funding, blah, blah, blah. He's doing a fundraiser with a Wall Street billionaire, a quote, top dollar fundraiser. They are buying influence. That's exactly what they're doing. And he's going to take that phone call when they call him, when they want favors, when the next crash comes. And by the way, he's, um, Trump is, is already doing 2020 rallies, just so you know. He's doing, and he settled on, instead of make America great again, now he's going with keep America great. Well, thank you for that giant gift you just handed over to the left, because that ain't, <laughs> try, try using that on Bernie. Oh, we want to keep America great. He'll give you a list of about 30 things that we're doing that are not great, how Americans are absolutely struggling, and income inequality is at a record high, and corruption is through the roof, and all these things you're doing are serving the rich, and keep America great. So we did a rally on that the other night. It was in New Mexico. And um, now, see, now he's in full campaign mode, Trump is. This early, he's in full campaign mode, giving rallies, doing, uh, you know, fundraisers with uh, billionaire Wall Street goons. So just know, I know that this is maybe something you could have predicted, but I think it's important to cover stories like this because, again, he will pretend to be a populist yet again, even though he's not. Okay, let's do the final story of the day. So yet again, we have legendary levels of pettiness and corruption coming out of the Trump administration in D.C. Trump officially revokes California's power to set stricter pollution rules. So we covered this previously. What happened was, uh, I guess the Obama administration had come up with these uh, fuel efficiency standards, and they were ready to go into effect. And the Trump administration rolled back those new rules. But there were car companies that voluntarily met with the California government, and they said, we're going to follow these rules anyway. The wheels were already in motion. We were moving in the direction of following the rules in the first place. And so the fact that the federal government is backing off of them is going to change nothing. In California, we will abide by these rules. And what Trump did in response is he sued them. He sued the car companies. And he accused them of, you know, basically doing anti-competitive, antitrust nonsense. And 
that's ridiculous. I mean, the whole idea behind laws like that are to prevent, like, flat-out collusion between companies and price-fixing where they price-gouge people. The idea behind that is behind those laws is not to go after companies for voluntarily working with state governments to not destroy the environment. To voluntarily meet and have better fuel efficiency standards, that there's no downside to that. Now, Trump pretends like, oh, the prices will go through the roof, but that's nonsense. That's nonsense. So he's got nothing. He honestly only, they only sued because Trump feels slighted. So it's incredibly petty. He's acting like, no, now you have to abide by what I said, and I rolled back the fuel efficiency standards, so make worse cars. Make ones with shitty fuel efficiency standards. Oh, my God. So now it's, um, he's revoking California's power to set their own pollution rules. Here's why this is incredibly important. It's also linked to the pettiness, but remember, guys, the lie that has been told to us for decades by the Republicans is what? Our ideology is states' rights. In other words, we don't want the big, bad federal government getting in your life and telling you what you can and cannot do. We want the states to be the laboratories of democracy and make their own rules and their own regulations and test out stuff and see how it goes. We just don't want the federal government in your life. The state government is closer to you, and it has a more direct impact, so let's let the states make their own rules, and, and we'll go from there. Turns out that's not the case. They don't believe in states' rights. Trump doesn't believe in states' rights. That was always a lie. It was always a ruse. And you want to know why? You know what the origin is of the states' rights argument? This is really fascinating. I'm not sure how many people remember this today, but the whole idea was tied to segregation. This is the origin of the, of the people harping away on the issues of states' rights. The point they made is, the argument is, the fed, how dare the big bad federal government come into my state here in the South and take away my freedom? What they meant was my freedom to separate the races, my freedom to say here's a white water fountain, here's a colored person water fountain, my freedom to deny service to a black person at my diner when this counters only for whites. That was, I'm not kidding, guys. You got to understand, people are ultimate rationalizers, and they're crafty, and and they're clever. And so they don't just, it's not like in the South, they just openly came out and said, "Um, we are racist, and we would like to continue to be racist. That's not the argument they made. They don't want to sound like they're shitty people. So what do you do? You got to, you know, you got to sugarcoat it a little. And how did they sugarcoat it? By saying, oh, no, no, this has nothing at all to do with race. This is all about we don't want the big, bad federal government coming into our state and taking away our freedom. We think we have the right. We have states' rights. So we have the right to make our own decisions with our own lives. And if those decisions happen to be to massively discriminate against black people and have official segregation, so be it. Federal government can butt out. So when it comes to treating other races as second-class citizens. They go, states' rights, federal government, get out of here. But when it comes to states saying, we're going to have intelligent pollution standards because we don't want people breathing in shitty air and we don't want to aid, you know, help climate change go further down the road. We want to be good stewards of the environment, so we're going to have pollution rules. Then the Republicans step in and go, no, you will abide by the federal government and we have really bad 
fuel efficiency standards and pollution standards. They are not ideologically consistent. They don't have core beliefs. It's all rank partisan nonsense. And in this instance, it's, I think it does have something to do with the fact that Trump is totally bought by the fossil fuel industry as well. Okay, so getting rid of fuel efficiency standards, that helps his buddies in the fossil fuel industry. The personal pettiness, because he took it as a slight, plus the corruption, plus the lack of any ideological consistency or coherence, and here we are. We have a situation where the federal government is forcing car companies to pollute more and have worse fuel efficiency standards, and Trump is officially revoking California's power to set stricter pollution rules. I don't know what else to say about it other than it is absolute insanity. Okay. And with that, we are done, baby. Everybody enjoy the rest of your day. And uh, I will talk to you on Monday. Love y'all. Peace.